about to hear my conversation with the Chief Fixed Income Strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk all about North American fixed income markets. We also touch on emerging markets and what you should be looking for as an investor. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm back with my regular guest, Dustin Reed, the Chief Fixed Income Strategist for McKinsey Investments. Dustin, welcome back. Hey, Matt. It's great to be back on the program. We uh, timed your arrival on the podcast uh, just the day after the Fed meeting. Maybe I'll just start with the most broad question. What happened at that meeting and, uh, and how did markets react? Yeah, absolutely. So it, uh, it was a significant, significant meeting and a significant market reaction uh, to, to that meeting. Uh, the Fed came out um, and the market interpretation of the Fed's uh, discussion uh, was, was definitely dovish. It was a little bit in the statement that got changed in terms of the Fed turning turning the tide, uh, and then Powell uh, during the press conference emphasizing a few dovish pieces. One particularly around the ability to uh, ease rates uh, before inflation gets to two percent. But I would also say the the dots and the the uh, the underlying forecast that power the dots, so to speak, were very were very important. So I think the market going into the meeting was probably expecting a bit of a hold the line, higher for longer, right. hawkish uh, narrative, or at least non-dovish narrative, maybe by slightly better way to say it. And what we got was uh, a Fed that was expecting now 75 basis points worth of easing in 2024. The previous forecast round in September was 50 basis points in 2024. And I think it wasn't a massive surprise to the market and us, but I think some of the some of the some of the underlying economic data is really important there. And mm. uh, maybe I'll dig into that for a sec. So, yeah, great. Um, I mean, the Fed has a dual mandate framework, as I'm sure most people know: uh, price stability uh, and full employment. And then the, the inflation side, price stability is we look at many many things, of course, but the the mandated uh, metric is what's called core PCE. And that, that core PCE number has been drifting lower here for a bit. And uh, the the Fed's estimate at the end of 24, as of its latest forecast round, is now 2.4%. And the Fed's been targeting, uh, with the new framework of a few years ago right before the pandemic, or at the very early part of the pandemic, uh, 2%, plus or right. minus, you know, on average 2% over the medium term, however the Fed wants to define medium term, which it actually doesn't define because it wants probably a little bit of wiggle room. Sure. So that 2.4% is pretty low. And when you look at how core inflation, core PCE inflation has been evolving here over the last little bit, when you look at kind of a three-month or a six-month annualized run rate, it's actually already there. Uh, I would actually argue even below. Uh, it's trending already towards 2%. So hmm. there are some people, both I would say inside and outside the Fed, that would suggest that the Fed is at the point or maybe having achieved the point of uh, of achieving, so to speak, um, sustainable prices or price stability. And that's, that's very important because that means that 
the nominal rate of Fed funds, the, the, the main policy lever that the Fed has, uh, could be too high with the, the range at currently five and a quarter to five and a half. And that, that, is, that is significant. I think real rates here are very important. So real rates are obviously the, the nominal rate of interest. Less inflation gives you a real rate. And even though the annual rate, the current 12-month rate of core PCE is a little over 3%, 3.1 or 3.2, the last six months has seen a significant deterioration low, lower in uh, in inflation. And if you, if you assume that the last six-month annualized is running a little above 2%, and effective Fed funds is currently trading at 533, basically eight basis points over the bottom of the range, which it is, then that, that essentially says that real rates are running at a little over 300 basis points. And I think this Fed, and most Feds, and most central banks, but this Fed in particular wants to try and stick this soft landing. And I would say that uh, given the Fed's framework and given what we know from kind of previous cycles and academic literature, a real rate of 300 basis points puts uh, sticking the soft landing at risk. I would actually say serious risk. And I think a lot of people inside the Fed would agree with that, particularly the doves. Right. So I think that uh, this is why we got the um, people are calling it a pivot. I wouldn't call it a pivot, but I would call it kind of significant evolution of the narrative uh, this week with the Fed meeting. You know, why, why is that happening? And I would say it's actually kind of obvious because if the Fed wants to stick this hard landing, it's extremely unlikely to have real rates at 300 basis points and Fed funds doing nothing. The Fed needs to adjust uh, its Fed funds its Fed funds uh, target. And uh, and come lower, and I would say significantly lower, and frankly a lot more, a lot sorry, a lot lower than the seventy five that the Fed's even pricing in for next year. It's probably really? going to have to be significantly more than that. Interesting. I know that the last podcast we recorded was uh, early November after the last uh, decision. At that point in time, if memory serves me uh, correct, uh, you were—I would say—you were not positioned dovishly. Uh, maybe you weren't hawkish, but you were sort of taking that position. Right. Uh, I, and I also know in subsequent conversations that you've turned more dovish uh, in the positioning of your portfolio. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. I guess what insight did you have that led to that conclusion? Uh, it seems like it's been the right place so far, and maybe just talk a, a little bit about that trade. I think um, probably around that time started to look at some of the what I would call very minutiae data, some of the feeds, anecdotal, talking to people on the street that are you know good Fed watchers. And over those maybe two or three weeks after the the last time we recorded this podcast, started to think about what was appropriate pricing for 2024. I'd have to go back and take a look, but you know, maybe in early November, you're probably looking at the market pricing, I don't know, 60, 70, 75, 80 basis points. It'll, it'll bounce around, obviously, in sure. terms of how much Fed easing for 2024. And kind of running through the first half of November, just didn't it started to not add up to me in terms of what likely needed to happen and this is kind of odd because obviously coming off a very strong GDP quarter for the Fed uh, sorry for the US at what was originally I think 48 or 49 per 4.8 4.9% actually got revised higher to 5%. I mean it's a very very strong quarter. Uh, so it's kind of odd, but you saw some things happening particularly in the I'd say both parts of the mandate. I mean, clearly on uh, the inflation side, 
seeing more declines or slowing, I should say, broadly across the inflation spectrum. So not only the shelter stuff was coming lower, which we talk about a lot on this podcast, but other yeah. things across. So inflation was stepping down more broadly, which is obviously more constructive. And then some things on the labor market side, I mean, claims are still, and even this morning, still very, very strong for sure. But things like private payrolls are slowing on a monthly basis or three-month annualized basis. Uh, The headline jobs numbers are clearly slowing. Uh, The beverage ratio is coming lower for a long time. We looked at the beverage ratio in the high ones, so kind of 1.8, 1.9, even 2.0. And again, the beverage ratio is basically just a simple ratio between the percentage of job applicants divided over um, uh, the unemployment rate. So for a long time pre-pandemic, that number was 1.1 to 1.3%. So you basically, for every unemployed person, you had 1.1 or 1.3 jobs available. That number during the pandemic spiked to 2.0. And so what happens is you have a significant, I mean, if you have not enough people and too many jobs to fill, what happens? Wages go up. Sure. And that presumably has a bit of, bit of a dovetail into inflation and you know everyone knows the story. So I think the Fed believed that that ratio needed to come lower to the pre-pandemic level. And so that has come lower. It got stuck a little bit above 1.5, but in the most recent data, it's come a little, before, a little below 1.4. So you're seeing that softening. It's early days, early innings, as I like to say. Um, I think baseball analogies are really good because you can slice it almost 18 different ways and people know exactly what you mean. Right. Uh, so kind of top of the second, bottom of the second type stuff, but temporary hiring, beverage ratio, private payrolls, like those things, early days of, okay, this is this is interesting. Like this is coming off. And of course it could bounce back, but so far haven't seen that yet. And when you couple that with the kind of loosening or, or lowering in uh, or slowing in, in prices, uh, it seemed to suggest in the early part of November that the market was mispriced for Fed easing for 24. Now, of course, we won't we won't know, right? We won't know how it all goes until December 31st, 2024, when it's kind of you know in in the bag and we see how the year went out. But given what we were thinking, I think for the first half of November of how 24, particularly the first half of 24, should evolve, 60 or 70 basis points of easing for 24 didn't look right to us. So. A couple of days before U.S. Thanksgiving on the 21st, started talking very significantly about the idea of 150 basis points worth of Fed easing in 2024, huh? with the first easing happening in May, and that first easing might actually be 50 basis points as opposed to 25. And so we talked about that a lot on the team and discussed kind of obviously how could that happen? How could that not happen? Where are the risks and that sort of thing and continue to evolve that, that dialogue, uh, for, you know, for, for a while. And I think people started to, uh, begin to buy into that narrative. We made a few trades, uh, around there, particularly looking at the short end of the curve. We've liked investment grade paper on the credit side, particularly in the short end, kind of in the three, four, five, six year space, um, for a number of reasons, obviously the yield capture, if central banks are going to act aggressively and early, maybe more than the market expects that, you know, a soft landing is probably good for risk assets, you know, tighter, right. tighter credit spreads, good for equities. 
um, good for the front end, i.e. prices higher, yields lower, uh, with front end doing the majority of the heavy lifting. So a lot of those trades and looking at a lot of those kind of ideas, um, and those are kind of the, the trades we've had on. Also, also probably skewing the overall duration, of course, which is at the end of the day, the, the bread and butter for any fixed income portfolio. Of course. And moving from a less, I would say, uh, net uh, short position to closer to a neutral, maybe even slightly longer. And when you look at our portfolio, we look neutral, but kind of when you pull back the curtain, we're, we're quite long duration in North America and, and, and we kind of neutral out based on the, the Japan short that you and I have talked about a lot. Sure. Um, and so kind of the net net is a slight, is a slight long, but it's not, you know, we're neutral on everything that would be, that, that would not, it's much more nuanced than that kind of being long duration, particularly in North America and short in Japan. Um, and that kind of nets out to be a slight net long, but you know, we want to be long duration, broadly speaking in, uh, you know, in North America. So that's kind of, you know, how it's gone. And, uh, I know the fed decision this week would probably underscore our view, at least for now. And again, we'll know December 31st, 2024. Um, but, sure. uh, for now, I mean, yesterday's, um, Yesterday's Fed meeting was very much an underline of our view that uh, the Fed is turning the boat you know, slowly, and uh, and the front end has a fair bit of uh, work to do uh, already. I mean, we saw a 30 basis point move lower in two-year notes, uh, U.S. two-year notes yesterday. That's a big, big move. move. Yeah. And then we saw a follow-through in overnight trading in Asia and early yeah. Europe, which is also pretty significant. Uh, you would sometimes expect to see with such a big, you know, two second standard deviation plus move um, in a in a New York session, uh, some some give back in Asia, but we didn't see that. We saw follow through, so that yeah. that I think is very is very telling. So I think I think we're on the right path here. Things will change. I'm sure the Fed will not do 50 in May, 50 in July, and 50 in November as I've sketched out. I'm sure it will change, <laughs> either the the nominal number and and the pace. Um, but that's kind of what I sketched out in kind of mid-November the 21st. And, uh, you know, that will evolve. And I would say, frankly, with yesterday, the risks are uh, March is more live for the FOMC uh, for a Fed cut. Uh, and now the market has gone from 80, 85, 90 basis points when we talked about this and rolled it out on the 21st of November for easing for 2024 for the U.S. to... Uh, about 150 basis points. Go figure. Wow. Um, so the market's kind of priced where we are. And I wouldn't say that we look stale, but we don't look exotic. Let's put it that way at this right. point. I think we're, we're very much like our, our view that was evolving three plus weeks ago, depending when people look at this podcast or listen to this podcast, looks kind of consensus-ish at this point now, at least from a market pricing perspective, and people have caught up to our view. So, of course, as is always the case, you know, what's the, what's the next evolution? Yeah, and we spend, sure. spend, a fair bit of, spend a fair bit of time thinking about that. But yeah, maybe I'll, I'll leave that answer there. Yeah, that's that's a great context, Dustin. There's always something in the the markets that uh, that you know keeps you employed. Uh, Absolutely, so, so it's a good thing. Um, <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll leave the U.S. Uh, with that. I, that was a great explanation on everything, uh, and move to Canada. Sure. What's the latest uh, on your view of Canada and uh, the latest of the Bank of Canada? So, a lot of interesting things since you and I last spoke on on this podcast in Canada. Um, the first, maybe just to kind of economics before strategy, before trade. Sure. So kind of just the uh, the economic side. We had the National Accounts Q3 release a couple of weeks ago, and it was uh, odd and challenging, I think, for a lot of people that uh, watch Canada full time. And I used to do that in uh, you know former former career, and we all 
anyway, it was it was it was a challenging release because originally you called maybe three months ago. Q2 in Canada printed negative, small. I think it was minus 0.2% annualized for Q2. And then when we got the Q3 data a few weeks ago, that negative number for Q2 GDP growth, real growth, was revised somewhat significantly higher into the low ones, positive 0.1. Sorry, positive 1.2, I believe it was. This is a pretty big uh, change. And then Q3 was... Um, Q3 originally printed as negative by significant amount, more than more than one percent uh, for Q3, and so people are kind of sitting back and scratching their heads and saying, "Okay, well, we thought Q2 was negative, and we were getting ready for the inevitable Canada's in recession, you know, clickbait or red headline sure. on Bloomberg, as we would say in the market, yeah, yeah. Uh, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, but Q2 got revised significantly higher." And, and then there's Q and then the Q3 number. Okay. So like what, like what's going on here? And the way I looked at it was kind of stepping back and saying, okay, maybe even though quarterly data isn't that noisy per se, um, but stepping back even more and what are we seeing here? And one of the things I noticed was that household consumption with the revised data, um, household consumption in Q2 and Q3 was flat, net flat. I think it was uh, down 0.1% 0.1% annualized in Q2 and up 0.1% in Q3 annualized. So basically net flat. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's interesting. Despite all the noise and final consumption and government spending and business expenditures and inventories and trade, and all those things are important and interesting and you know obviously contribute. But what are households doing? How are households feeling? Are households feeling like spending or no? And the takeaway to me is that over... Q2 and Q3, so between April, basically April through September, household spending was flat. That's with the unemployment rate moving higher by about 0.8 percentage points from around 5% even to about 5.8. Okay. So you've got household spending flat with the unemployment rate, admittedly at a low level, starting low level, sure. moving up a not, a not insignificant amount. And I'm thinking that's not that's not constructive. That's also, I mean, somewhat obviously for those of us living uh, in the country with a pretty good tailwind of immigration, right? Which I generally view as constructive for spending. Right. I think people come and set up houses. I mean, I've lived in the U.S. and when I went to the U.S. as an immigrant, I spent a decent amount of money getting set up. And I think that's generally the case. Um, So I think there's a tailwind with immigration on what is flat household spending in Q2 and Q3, that is with an un, with a rising unemployment rate, and that is not a great that is not a great picture. So that's kind of the economics of how I'm looking at it. So just to make a finer point on that, that would yeah. indicate that um, call it the non-immigrant community within Canada would probably have negative uh, spending just to offset what you're saying of, of right. different positives. Right. Yeah. So, in, in, yeah. So like impossible to say given the numbers, obviously, of course, but if sure. there was magically no immigration, that household spending consumption numbers would be, I think, quite negative. Right. That's obviously not the case because that's not the reality, but sure. it tells you how I think kind of the state of play of how households are. So I think that's really interesting. And then you kind of couple in what we were talking about a few minutes ago around the U.S. and the Fed. So the bank here, Bank Canada, is the market is starting to price in, obviously, uh, Bank Canada cuts. We spoke a lot on these podcasts, particularly September, October, around the market not really pricing in 
the right amount for the end of next year, focusing on kind of the December 24 index swap, OIS, overnight index swap, and what, what it was pricing. And for a long time, even into early October, I believe, before we had the maybe two of these ago in the second week of October, the market was pricing no change in the Bank of Canada for 14 months, October 23 right. through December 24. And we, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't see it. I thought that was uh, not not correct, Lynn, to put it lightly. And so the market has been adjusting and adjusted well before uh, our last podcast, to be fair. Uh, but it has now started to price in about 130 basis points of Bank of Canada easing through the end of 24. So there's still a little bit less of Bank of Canada easing priced by the market than the U.S. U.S. is starting at a slightly higher nominal rate. Right? Bank of Canada is at five percent. Uh, effective Fed funds is five thirty-three. So it's you know depending how you define a, a hike or a cut, but maybe half. Uh, oh, sorry, one and a, one and a half hikes uh, higher in in the U.S. But regardless, the market's starting to price in significant uh, cuts here. Now, part of that is going to be. The U.S. leads and Canada cycle is not going to be far off from the U.S. plus or minus. And so you're going to have that kind of natural uh, beta, uh, so to speak, on the Canadian rate side and policy side and pricing side. But it's also, I think, people getting a little bit more nervous around some of this household consumption data, the unemployment rate moving higher here more quickly than in the U.S. Um, And I think obviously the the elephant in the room continues to be the housing market and, and the resets that are probably going to be happening in the second half of 24. A lot of people obviously taking on five-year mortgages uh, in 19 and 20 that look to be resetting significantly in the back half of 24 and throughout 25. Uh, I would say particularly the first half uh, before, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic kind of set in, in, um, in the second half of, uh, of 20 and you'd be resetting at 25, um, second half of 25. So I, th- I think that that's, that's starting to happen. I think the April meeting for the Bank of Canada is pretty live. April is a forecast meeting for the bank. Um, and I can see the bank potentially easing uh, in April, particularly if the U.S. situation, economic situation deteriorates, as I think it will, and the Fed lang- the Fed's language continues to evolve, as I think it will. I mean, I would say maybe somewhat obviously, if, if I'm wrong on May, and it's actually March for the Fed, then April for the bank here, I think, is going to be very live. Um Great. So I think a lot of it depends there, but I, you know, kind of on the way up, and we talked about this a lot. I don't think the bank is going to be much more than fifty basis points in terms of its policy rate outside of the Fed, and that was kind of our back of the envelope view going up, hiking. And I think that's probably fair on the way down too. I don't think that the bank is going to be materially ahead or behind the Fed by more than 50 basis points. And you would argue that the Fed might have a, a free 25 basis point head start given its effective policy rates, 533, right. and the bank is is five. But it, it obviously ended, I mean, I'm assuming obviously that that is the last in the rate hike cycle and anything's possible, but seems to be the case for both. July was the last, the last hike. But uh, I would say that, uh, you know, clearly that ended within the 50 basis point uh, expectation. So we'll see. But I think uh, I think the bank's also getting ready to do a significant amount of easing um, next year. Again, real rates here uh, are probably too high. Right. If inflation continues to come lower and the bank, Bank Canada, Governor Macklem wants to 
stick the soft landing, uh, similar to the Fed and the U.S. economic situation. And just a, a point of clarity, I guess, or maybe a question. I think you've inferred that uh, the U.S. would lead on cuts uh, as opposed to Bank of Canada. Why is that? I mean, when you sort of look at the robustness of the different economies, U.S. has been holding up much better than Canada. Why wouldn't yeah. you see Bank of Canada lead? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for, for the majority, not all of it, but majority of the last year and a half, the market has generally priced the the, the Fed to lead the, the Canada, Bank Canada. And that doesn't really sit with kind of anecdotal what we think, right? Um, housing market, lower beta economy, yeah. slower growth, right? Like all those things. I actually can't totally explain it. <laughs> I think it's a little odd, and, but the market's not always right, right? And I mean, in some ways, uh, to your <laughs> to your thing a little while ago, I mean, it's um, you know that's how we make our money, right? And sure. trying to figure out where there are market imperfections, and you know why why is the market pricing this? And we think you know we have an edge and etc. So uh, how do you generate alpha and you know active management, all those all those good things, which I think are obviously very very important, and you know fixed income and 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 cross-asset macro. So I'm not sure that that will actually hold. Um, Could argue again that the Fed's starting at a higher level than the BOC, so maybe it can get going. In reality, I don't think it matters much if the Fed starts in March and BOC goes in April or BOC goes in April, Fed goes in May or something like that. I mean, I think it's going to be relatively parallel. And the market, except unless you're trading the very, very short end of the market, at least in the fixed income space, and kind of swaps and very, very niche type markets. Right. I think for the majority of our investors and listeners, those things are not going to be a big deal. It's going to be more about the cycle. How do you trade the cycle? Do you like risks? Do you like cyclicals? Do you like defensives? You know, where on the curve do you want to be? How much risk do you want to take in credit? You know, do you want to be long dollar CAD or short dollar CAD? Like those types of things are going to be more about the cycle. And then so whether whether the market's right or wrong, whether the bank bank Canada starts in April or later, and it's a month or two difference or flip flops, I don't think it's a massive deal. There are people in the market that focus on these things, and there's money to be made. But people that are investing kind of medium to long term to very long term, sure, probably not a big deal. It's about it's about the cyclicality yep. and um, and and mispricings in the market from a, a cycle perspective, as opposed to one month here, one month there. Fair enough, uh, Dustin. Um, maybe we'll conclude with uh, just your views on emerging markets. Um, okay. Last time we had talked, or we have over several podcasts talked fairly significantly about your positioning in emerging markets. Yeah. Um, I think you referenced Brazil and Mexico in previous ones. Where do you see uh, that trade now, and, and where do you see opportunity? It's a great question. You're exactly right. Um, we've liked the EM trade, but particulars within EM for a while. We started legging into the the EM trade really in April and May of, of this year of 23, particularly in the LATAM space and particularly in what I would call kind of the high real yield LATAM space, Mexico and and, and Brazil, as you said. And so that would be buying um, local currency debt and generally in kind of the five to 10 year uh, neighborhood. And, you know, very, very macro Broadly speaking, rule of thumbs is that when um, when U.S. yields are declining and the dollar, U.S. dollar, is declining, that's generally not always, but generally a good environment for local market, local currency EM. Right. 
and vice versa. If, if U.S. rates are rising and the dollar is rising, it's generally not a conducive environment for local market um, local market uh, debt. And I would say like lo- local market EM as well, uh, currencies as well. So I think given what's happened this week and how things have evolved over the last three, four, five, six weeks, it continues to be a pretty constructive environment for those high yielding, whether it's nominal or real, but in particular real yielding emerging markets. So we still have that trade on. We've taken off a little bit, really more portfolio management as opposed to conviction um, because we're basically over oversized for how much risk we wanted to have in the portfolio because they they outperformed and they did quite well. So it was more uh, it was less about conviction and more about just right sizing the portfolio and, and portfolio management, risk management, so to speak. We still like that. And I think that you know the market's moved a long way here. Um, like I was saying, kind of 80 basis points price for the Fed for next year a number of weeks ago and now 150. It's a big, it's a big move. You know, how much more can we get? Uh, but that real yield capture, I think, is still quite constructive for for those high yielding uh, local market EM. So we still have it and we still like it um, in decent size. I would say we're overweight. We're not massively overweight, but we are, we are overweight and we like, you know, we like those positions. And I think the way things will evolve here will be quite good. I mean, just to get a little more specific, Brazil had a meeting this week, central bank um, had a meeting this week and uh, continued to ease rates. They've been easing for a bit. It has been easing for a bit uh, doing almost autopilot 50 basis points a meeting, having started around 14% in its policy rate. Mexico, Mexico has not started yet, but I think with the Fed I don't want to say pivot, but the Fed, again, evolution in the language and narrative this week, I think Q1 uh, rate cuts by uh, Benjico, Mexico Central Bank is, uh, I should say, are quite are quite likely, right. and that's generally good good to be buying a local market currency or receiving local markets, uh, as we would say, and I and so I think that's that's quite good. So in one of those trades, the easing cycle has started, and in another trade, it's I think just about to. A few months ago, even six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, market was still Q2, Q3 for the Mexico easing cycle to start, and now. I think that's moved up consensus-ish to maybe late Q1, maybe even maybe even earlier. So I think that's I think those are good trades. And uh, you know, I I've said this before. I think on the podcast, but I think it's worth reiterating for Canadian investors. You know, sitting in Canada, if you operate with CAD as your as your as your home currency, your base currency, there is a bit of a natural hedge to EM. And you know, having lived in the U.S. for a long time, coming back here a few you know a number of years ago to you know work at McKinsey. Um, I think Canadian, just noticing Canadians, I think are a little bit underinvested in EM broadly, and I think that's interesting because we have, as if that's if that's your home currency, your natural currency, Canadian dollar, CAD generally trades with you know, risk sentiment, right? Global risk sentiment, sure. As does regular, as does EM, but right. EM trades with a higher beta than CAD, so you kind of have a natural hedge a little bit because those currencies, in theory, are going to move a little bit more in parallel than say. U.S. dollar versus Mexico or U.S. dollar versus sure. Brazil. And so you kind of have that natural hedge a little bit. So we like that aspect of it as well for all for all EM when we're looking at it because we're always looking, you know, are we going to hedge? Are we not going to hedge? We often don't hedge our CAD, you know, EM exposure. And I think that that's, that's really interesting and important for, I think, for Canadian investors to keep in mind. So, yeah, so we still like those trades and uh, probably, I'll probably continue to run those into the new year and see how Q1 trades, particularly with, I would say, Benjico and uh, when and how quickly and how significantly it starts its rate easing cycle. 
That's uh, great, Dustin. One last question. We're getting close to time, but mm-hmm. uh, one last short one uh, before we go. You referenced uh, the Fed and Bank of Canada cutting rates and the intention for the central bankers to engineer the soft landing. Do you think that's possible? Or do you think that we're, we're in for a bit of a rocky time in the beginning of uh, next year and your predictions of rate cuts are contingent on sort of deterioration in economic environment? So one thing I would say, and it's, it's a great question. We talk about it a lot, and I get the question a lot. And maybe it's different between Canada and the U.S., but in the U.S., I would say we're already in the soft landing. It's already here. The question is, is it going to sustain or not, or to what degree will it sustain? Okay. In Canada, kind of referencing those household consumption numbers we talked about a few minutes ago, I can't say quite as convincingly that we, Canada, are in the soft landing. There's definitely more risk around that. I'm not saying even just outlook. I'm saying in real time and and what we've experienced the last couple of quarters. I mean, to state the obvious, Canada printed negative in Q3 and could obviously be revised again, significantly negative in Q3. Right. U.S. printed plus 0.5. Right. I mean, there's a there's a six percentage point plus difference there. So, even saying are you know are we in a soft landing? I think it's actually almost important to delineate between Canada and and the U.S. I think in the take the U.S. first. Um, I think the Fed want desperately, desperately wants to try and stick this soft landing, um, and that's why I think the Fed will. It's part of the rationale, and there are many. Uh, why I think the Fed will ease um, soon-ish and maybe significantly. Um, Because to come out of this very, very challenging period we've had over the last three and a half years of the pandemic, obviously challenging from society, challenging from an inflation perspective, uh, obviously a big big move higher. To be able to stick that soft landing is uh, historic, to to not not be overly dramatic. In some ways, as I say, it would almost uh, uh, Chairman Powell would be would have out Greenspan Greenspan, <laughs> and it is. I mean, it's it's it would be it would be historic and legendary. And uh, you know, I think the Fed very much not only for the to do the right thing for society, but for sure, of course, it wants to do that number one. But I think from an, an historic perspective, it would be it would be exactly that historic. And uh, I think the Fed, I think the Fed very much wants to do that. So I think it will very much give it its best shot. And I think the the playbook has changed, particularly after 2020. What we I think we learned from central bank reaction functions after 2020 was that banks and versus kind of 08, 09, the global financial crisis for those of us that were around, they were quite slow to react in 08, 09. And 2020 was very, very different very significant, very quickly, a lot of liquidity. And maybe that was the wrong answer, but that is still the playbook. And we saw a little bit of an appetizer with that earlier this year with SVB uh, and the regional banking, I wouldn't call it crisis, but the regional banking issue around SVB in March. The Fed came in with a new program very, very quickly and probably, probably saved the economy from having a bit of a mini crisis at best. Mm-hmm. Um around the banking sector and kept credit flowing, even though credit credit availability was already declining, it, you know, the delta around that, the speed of that didn't change too, too much. And a lot of that I think was because of Fed, you know, reaction and speed. So I think, and I think the Bank of Canada is also related there. I think the bank will do that. It looks like Macklem and we'll see how it goes, but it looks like Macklem might be a little bit, a little bit slower to have that reaction. Um, but we'll see. But we'll see how it goes. But I do think that the bank here clearly wants to 
uh, preserve the soft landing, although I, I would argue that the soft landing might be slipping away given what we've already seen from the household consumption data. And, uh, and that to me, that to me is a concern. So I think we could see a little bit of a gap opening up here between Canada and the US. And that obviously provides uh, some market opportunities from an active management system. So it's obviously something within, you know, fixed income and I would say, you know, just cross asset, obviously, sure. even, even sitting on the Glo- uh, global investment committee, just looking at, you know, various uh, equity markets and what might be, you know, opportunistic versus not opportunistic. Um, yeah, I think that, I think there's a lot of, a lot of interesting things happening in the next, in the next one to two quarters here in terms of kind of um, the gap, so to speak, between here and uh, in the U.S. So, yeah, but I do think they want to stick the soft landing. Will they be successful? I mean, I think in some ways, because of the U.S. consumer and the households having delevered, and I think the Fed maybe being a little more proactive, the Fed probably has an edge on keeping the U.S. Um, in a soft landing scenario. And Canada, Obviously, you know, if the U.S. catches a cold, then Canada could, you know, catch catch a flu. And given the housing market stuff here and a few other things, I'm a little bit more concerned that Canada will be able to stick the hard, the soft landing. Um, and the data would already seem to suggest that that might be the case. So we'll see how it evolves in the next one or two quarters. Dustin, very interesting. Thanks for spending so much time uh, with me walking us through that. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks again for having me on. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 